Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the policies, events and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I am Director of ECFR. And this week's podcast is about the Middle East in a multipolar world. America's withdrawal from Afghanistan two years ago marked the beginning of a more general US disengagement from the greater Middle East. To some degree, the vacuum it's leaving behind has been filled by outside powers like China and Russia, but an even more development in the is the rise of regional Middle East powers like Saudi Arabia, Iran, the UAE, Turkey, and Israel, who are getting increasingly comfortable flexing their muscles and balancing between global players to maximize their gains. In other words, the Middle East is not just becoming more multipolar itself, but it is embracing multipolarity at a global level. So we're going to look today at who the winners and losers are from these power shifts, how China and Russia are exploiting them, and also what Europeans can do to pursue their interests in a region that's become much more comfortable with hedging and is building different relationships with different players. And I'm very happy to have two very special guests to, to help us make sense of this today. Back to the podcast from within ECFR, we have Ellie Garenmeyer, who is the deputy head of our Middle East and North Africa program and a senior policy fellow at ECFR. And also down the line, we have Alistair Burt, who is the pro-chancellor of Lancaster University. He's a former British Conservative Member of Parliament, was the Minister of State for the Middle East and North Africa for many years under many prime ministers, and is also a council member of ECFR. So why don't we go to you first, Alistair? Can you tell us a bit more about how you see the, the Middle East developing in its international diplomacy? How come you, we're seeing countries like Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Egypt, once very firm Western allies, increasingly looking to the East? All three of those countries recently were invited and applied to join the BRICS. Both Riyadh and Abu Dhabi uh, are looking into how they can lessen their dependence on the dollar. This is not the sort of Middle East that, that many people would maybe have expected if we'd been having this discussion five or 10 years ago. Well, hello, uh, Mark and Ellie. It's really good to be on the podcast with you. Uh, two good friends who know the region well, and thank you very much for the invitation. I come at this from a position, as you say, from having been in the Foreign Office as Minister responsible for the MENA region from 2010 on and off until 2019, you know, with some years off in between, but five years of that time in the ministerial role. And during that time, a number of things developed, which has given me a sense not only of a changing Middle East, but a Middle East which is more self-assertive, looks to its own interests. And I think is quite rightly requiring the rest of us to look at them and our relationships in a different way. And I don't think that it's a problem, and I think it's an inevitability. Uh, let me explain what I mean. Uh, the movement away from the West, I would chart as having lasted for many years. You picked out one or two examples, I'd picked out, out one or two more. There was everything about Iraq. There was Obama's Cairo speech that wasn't really followed through with a different approach to the uh, Islamic world. There was 2011 and the 
hesitant and uncertain response of Western states to what was going on. There was the 2013 red line decision or non-decision in relation to Syria. There was the non-reaction to the Iranian missiles launched from Yemen towards the UAE and Saudi Arabia. All these things, I think, built up in the minds of those I know in the Gulf and the Middle East to say, this is a different world and we're going to have to be more reliant ourselves on making decisions about our own future and our own security. Uh, so we're going to start to make those decisions. We have a tendency to look at decisions of other countries from our point of view. Why are they doing this to us? What's the meaning for us about what they're doing? Instead of looking more straightforwardly as to what's in their interests, which is why they might be doing it. Take an example, the OPEC plus decision to raise the price of oil at a time when it looked as though the impact of Ukraine was marked and a consideration in the West was if the price of oil was raised, it helps Russia. Well, I was talking to friends in the Gulf about the decision they took. And someone said to me, it's not about being pro-Russia or anti the US. It's about us. We need the price of oil to stay at a reasonable rate. And we're taking the decision to do this. So I think the most important thing we can do in terms of our relationships with the region is recognize it's not 1950 anymore. It's not 2001 anymore. It's a situation where we need to look through the other end of the telescope, look at decisions that have been made in relation to what's important to the states that we're talking about. And to that extent, the BRICS decision is fascinating in terms of what the interests of those states may be. And I think as much as thinking what influence will Russia and China have on the states that are joining BRICS, what influence are those very powerful Gulf states going to have on Russia and China uh, in relation to the way in which the BRICS work? So my view would be that we need a different lens to look at the region. It is changing, but I don't think it's moving away from us necessarily. It's making its own decisions. It will still want and need the friendships, long-standing friendships, security, intelligence, and economic that we have that can't really be replaced. We shouldn't be pressing people into a decision for or against. We should accept that the world is as it is and work with those who are accepting a changing world and who are not looking over their shoulders anymore at other people to validate their foreign policy decisions. Great. Thanks, Alistair. So, Ellie, you've been following the Middle East for a long time as well. We've had various discussions about some of the kind of twists and turns that Alistair described over the years. How did you interpret the, the BRICS invitation and the, the latest developments? Well, hi, everybody. Good to be with you all. So, I mean, for me, the BRICS decision, of course, there's a lot of political symbolism around it, but it's a little bit like in late 2022 when Iran was finally granted membership of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And, you know, everyone was asking me, what does this mean? Is this going to be a big major, you know, game changer for Iran, particularly on the economic front, given China's leading role in the organization? And actually, the, I think when these countries are joining these, let's say, traditionally Eastern-leaning blocs, it is a political signal that is important and we should take note of it. But in practice, I am often left scratching my head in terms of what is the tangible outcome of joining these organizations. So, you know, 
BRICS is even further back than the Shanghai Cooperation Organization in terms of having a, a structure that really coordinates, facilitates as a secretariat to actually get economic interaction done. You know, they've they've faced a lot of um, hurdles introducing this unique currency that they want to work on, even, you know, similar to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which has been pushing for this idea of de-dollarization. It's, it's been an uphill struggle. But I think what is noteworthy is that it's not just countries like Iran that are expressing interest in joining these organizations as a way to bypass essentially U.S. sanctions architecture and Western sanctions pressure, but it's now Western partners like the UAE, like Saudi Arabia, that are expressing a keener and keener interest on working on these types of projects to do with de-dollarization and in their view, de-risking from the West almost, that's the most interesting part. And they are, you know, these countries are actively working with, you know, giants like China to look at alternative modes of doing business. And I, you know, in my view, when I when I talk to folks from the region, part of this is a growing fear that, you know, yes, so far, Western sanctions or Western political pressure has been mostly directed at adversaries like China, Russia, Iran, um, North Korea, but that there could be any moment where these tools are used against them directly as well. Um, and so I think everybody is trying to find a way to hedge against that inevitability in their view. So you talked a lot about the global changes, and we talked about them a bit before and over the years. But what one thing I was wondering specifically is whether some of the zeal to with which Saudi and and UAE and others are looking towards the BRICS and the and and China has also something to do with Iran, because it's quite an interesting change in the way that certainly Russia. And China have been dealing with Iran over the last few years. They used to be part of the P5 plus one, and they were kind of trying to position themselves against Iran's nuclear program as neutral, you know, as part of a kind of alliance with the other great powers. But, you know, what we've seen over the last couple of years since the war in Ukraine is, is Iran completely changing its relationship with Russia and becoming an important partner to, to Russia, arming Russia, etc. Part of me was wondering to what extent the uh, other Arab countries are, are wanting to build up their relationships with, with Russia and with China so that they don't become kind of quasi allies of, of Iran and to try and pull them back and create a bit of space so that they have something to lose by um, having important relationships with other countries in the Gulf, with the Arab countries in the Gulf. Well, I mean, certainly I think that is that is a component, and it's the same thing for Israel, by the way, that has very close relations, you know, between Netanyahu and Putin directly. And, um, you know, part of that is to be able to peel away Russia from Iran on very strategic areas of military cooperation. But in my view, for, for the UAE and Saudi in particular, this hedging game is actually less to do with Iran, which, by the way, they've tried to contain through direct diplomacy with Iran themselves. But it's to do with their relationship with the United States and the sense that actually by playing this game between the West and the East, they put their own self-interest first, as, as Alistair said, and they get the best out of both sides. And so I think the years of, you know, this patron-client relationship between the global powers and the regional powers, which both China, Russia, but also the US and to a certain extent Europeans had with different regional actors where they were, you know, chess people 
pieces around this big geopolitical game has almost been turned on its head. And there's an inverse relationship now going on where they are trying to play the, the major powers off against each other. And, you know, you can really see that with the, with the sort of negotiation track underway between Saudi Arabia and the United States on this issue of a security pact, potential normalization with Israel, and obtaining a nuclear cooperation from the United States, which, you know, several years ago would have been unimaginable. I think that's dead right, Ellie, in that I don't think uh, states as smart as Saudi Arabia and the UAE are ditching one relationship in order to get into another. I think they they obviously recognise a world that's moved away from, from 1945, in which liberal democracies have reached a point at which there's a pushback against them in relation to whether or not they deliver the stability and economic development that people want. And we're getting a pushback in relation to that. Clearly, it's something that I find disturbing. But there's an alliance of other states coming together, led by Russia and China, but with one or two others that are joining it for other other reasons. But I think the, the Gulf states see this as an opportunity not to be drawn into a different camp, but to say the world is a position where we don't want to be pressed to be one or the other. We want our own relationships. We see the benefits in all of them. The BRICS contains 32% of global GDP, 42% of global population. They're developing and growing. The United Kingdom is looking to hitch itself closer to India. Why shouldn't other people do the same? There's interest in developments in Latin America. The Iranians may be interested in Latin America and doing more there and joining Brazil and with Argentina joining the BRICS as well. So there's a wider set of global alliances developing. And I think we may be doing ourselves in the West a disservice by looking at the BRICS purely as an anti-Western alliance. Uh, And I don't think we should place our friends in wanting to do that either. They're taking an opportunity. And I think we should see what is in it for all of us in relation to that. And if there is some restraint on some of the powers that are already part of the BRICS, then that may be more than useful for all of us if those Gulf states can exercise influence. So I'd like to talk a bit more later on about what we should be doing and how we should be thinking about our own relationships as Europeans in this mix. But before we do that, maybe we can kind of look at one of the paradoxes, maybe. I don't know if it's a paradox, but um, about what's happening to the Middle Eastern order, because I think a lot of people, certainly in Washington and uh, in European capitals, worried that if the US pulled out the, the region would collapse into, into chaos and you'd see all sorts of regional instability, war between different countries, ISIS coming back, maybe other kinds of things happening. But actually, in a weird way, the kind of multipolar Middle East seems to be becoming more peaceful. It's a brutal peace, but you know we've talked on the podcast before about the, the detente between Iran and Saudi Arabia and the role that China played in the region, about some of the ways that the war in Yemen seems to be winding down, uh, Assad being accepted back into the Arab fold, normalization agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia that, that you talked about being on the on the horizon. These are things which are quite uh, different from what a lot of people feared. I mean, I, certainly uh, it's no worse uh, situation than there was when the US was much more bound into it. And in some ways, the, what we're seeing is, is regional powers being a bit more moderate, taking a bit more responsibility for their affairs. How do you account for that? If, 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 firstly, as you say, it's a strange piece. And at 
achieved at what cost? If you look at whether any of the conflict issues have been resolved, I think the answer is they haven't. They've reached a point where a combination of weariness and politics has meant a lessening of the conflict, but issues haven't been resolved. Libya is still Libya, fought over with with rivals, no answer yet come to that. Yemen, yes, it's good that the fighting has slowed and that a ceasefire is held, but a, a Yemen in which the Houthi end up controlling the population, unless there's some guarantees both for their neighbors and indeed for the population of Yemen, well, how long is that going to last? Syria, normalization at what cost? Assad has waged war against his people, a half have been displaced or have left. There's no likelihood of them coming back. And just if the politics of the area allow for a normalization process, well, where does that leave the people of uh, uh, Syria and those who rose up not originally to remove him, but simply to call for reform? It's an unhappy situation unless we see some proper resolution of these issues where the people are brought into some sort of consideration for what, for what they want. But my last point would be a lessening of tension between Iran and neighbours is probably a good thing, obviously. Saudi Arabia and the UAE were both extremely anxious about what would happen if there was any sort of hot conflict involving Israel or the United States. They have a direct interest in that. And I think at some stage they lost patience in U.S. attempts to resolve the Iranian issue. I think we remember, was it a Warsaw conference some years ago, where I think Trump tried to pull people into what was effectively an anti-Iranian security arrangement, not a proper security arrangement, but an aggressive anti-Iranian alliance, and they were having none of that. I wonder if developing from that was a sense, well, we can actually create a better relationship with our neighbours than the Americans can, and it might be to all our benefit if we do. If the tension is lessened, that's great, but I would then say that's just a first step in making sure that the underlying issues between states are also being resolved and within states, rather than simply an uneasy peace which could be broken at some stage with a recurrence or an outbreak of conflict if any one of the difficult pieces of the jigsaw become dislodged. I mean, just to add to what Alice has said, you know, I don't think the region is in a um, rosy setting at all. There's just incredible amount of poverty, insecurity, corruption, you know, the looming challenge of climate that's facing and environmental challenges that's facing this region is is just so vast. And so many of these countries are unprepared for, for what will come in the near future. You know, we're talking about 20, 30 years time where, you know, a lot of um, this this region is going to become uninhabitable and there's going to be major migration. But I do think that after, you know, let's say 40 years of back-to-back wars in the direct Middle East region, you know, starting from the Iran-Iraq war in the 80s and onwards, you know, ending, ending more recently with the cooling of tensions in Yemen, there is a sense of maturity amongst the leadership across the, the Middle East, both, I would say, in the Arab countries and also in Iran, that to get to their economic goals, which is, I think, a number one priority, at least for the Gulf monarchies across the GCC states, and to some extent, parts of the leadership in Iran, they need a certain degree of security amongst the major powers. I would also include Turkey here, by the way, that we haven't mentioned. And so there is, as as Alistair says, this uneasy peace forming amongst these very strong-headed, you know, men at the top uh, leadership across these countries in order to drive forward 
forward these economic ambitions that they have. And I would just say, you know, this this idea that the U.S. has really withdrawn, I think is is slightly misleading. You know, we we still have a vast U.S. military footprint across the region. Just this summer, you know, the, the U.S. had a major buildup of military equipment near the Strait of Hormuz. They launched, deployed 3,000 Marines as a way to deter Iran. So the, the, the U.S. military footprint is definitely there. It's just being used in a very different way than what we have seen in the Iraq or Afghanistan um, wars. And so I think particularly the GCC states are very mindful that that U.S. security umbrella is still a necessary part of the of the, at least the current architecture that's in place. But of course, they are very aware that the long-term game for the U.S. is going to be China and the Asia-Pacific. And so I think a lot of what we're seeing being put in place both on the security dynamics and on the economic dynamics from the GCC states is to prepare for that more, there's a bigger shift away uh, from the United States, away from the region. But I keep saying that I'm going to come to Europe and I will come to Europe, but there are two other things that I think would be good to talk about before we do that. One is the, the Israel-Saudi normalization agreement and the prospects for that and why people do it, which you mentioned earlier. But also the other one is, also something we mentioned earlier, which is the Russia-Iran relationship. Ellie, you recently authored a policy brief for ECFR about Russia and Iran called Alone Together, how the war in Ukraine shapes the Russian-Iranian relationship. Maybe, if you don't mind, it'd be, I think, very interesting for our viewers if you could give us a quick summary of what you were saying in that, and then we could go to Alistair to talk a bit about the Israel-Saudi deal, and then we could kind of end with Europe. Sure, I mean, maybe I'll just pinpoint some fascinating things that I learned as, a, as someone who was researching this um, for a few months. One thing that has really accelerated the relationship between Moscow and Tehran since the war in 2022 has been the rise of very hardline, hard security oriented figures within both the Kremlin and the Islamic Republic of Iran. And part of what's triggered that rise in this thinking is actually a, a very notable shift in their relationship of these countries with the West, particularly with the United States. And so in Iran's case, the, the disappointment after the US withdrew from the 2015 nuclear deal under the Trump administration, also the disappointment that they felt with the Biden administration coming in and playing it very safe on, on diplomacy with Iran has, has created the, the rise of these hardline thinkers that are very close to the Kremlin. They've established links through the Syrian conflict uh, since 2015, when they have been in back and forth military cooperation and contact with Russian forces. And these exact figures that had created these links in the Middle East have, have been driving the relationship cooperation, particularly on military cooperation with assisting um, Russia with what have been quite vast deliveries of Iranian drones, as US intelligence and Ukrainian intelligence has been pointing to. So our paper looks at some of the domestic dynamics that have been driving this relationship. And we look at how they have accelerated the cooperation, obviously on military, which is very visible in Ukraine, but also on economic cooperation, whereby Russia is, is now far more interested in looking at at Iran as a kind of blueprint test study of how you survive, you know, decades of, of crippling US and European sanctions. And they are doing much more active cooperation on creating different geographical transit routes for trade, creating this new banking route for bypassing access to SWIFT and Western credit card services that is really important to daily lives of people. And they are also trying to create this systematic rivalry by 
attracting other countries, major economic powers, and particularly here they're focused on China, to this idea of immunizing uh, the global rest from U.S. sanctions policies. But what we found in this relationship was the, the Kremlin and the Islamic Republic are definitely going to assist and aid each other, particularly in the face of Western pressures. But there is a lot of, I would say, deep skepticism about how far the relationship can go, both practically because of a mismatch in their economic um, architectures, but also because the, the Russian side is consistently worried that Iran is going to eventually tilt towards the West. And the Iranian side is consistently worried that the Russians at the end of the day always view them as a subordinate client. And so we have in our paper recommended both calibrated uh, pressure, but also calibrated diplomacy to try and peel off Iran from further military assistance to Russia, at least uh, over the course of the Ukraine conflict. And we've, we've pinpointed some specific ideas of how Europe and the US should look to do that. Great. Thank you very much. Alistair, could you talk very briefly about how you see the kind of Israel-Saudi normalization and where, A, whether you think it's going to happen, but B, what do you think, what you think the, the dynamics that that would unleash be? I'll be very brief. I know we're running short of time and this could occupy us much longer. You know, for many of us, this has been, you know, the, the Holy Grail for, for decades in that if Saudi Arabia recognized the state of Israel, so many things flow from that, which are essentially good in the region. Plugging Israel's economy into the region is good news for many of the sclerotic Arab economies, not the Gulf economies, but others, good news all round. And also, if it signaled an end to the Palestinian issue, then so much of the politics of the region would be different. The issue now is whether or not it's going to do the latter in particular. The Palestinian issue is stalled, as everybody knows. It's currently not helped by an extraordinary government in Israel containing elements that are deeply worrying to anyone. Uh, who is frightened of religious nationalism uh, and supremacy and uh, doing things and saying things through particular ministers that uh, should worry anyone in the West. Palestinian leadership is sclerotic and, uh, and has not been in a position to make the decisions that are going to be necessary. And from what we hear, a, a decision, a normalization agreement, which doesn't include a Palestinian issue, it will be very difficult to deliver because there will be hostility throughout the Arab world in relation to that. A deal which included concessions by Israel for the Palestinian issue simply won't get through the Israeli government. And a deal which included a, a nuclear component might not get through the state's Senate. So you've got all sorts of problems. But if this could be pursued and answers were found, there's real opportunity there. Everybody's telling me at the moment it won't happen because either the Senate will block it or it will never happen in Israel or the Saudis won't be able to agree. But you never know, something will be pulled out of left field as we saw with the Abraham Accords and everything else. So an agreement on the right terms would be great for the Middle East. Some sort of agreement which avoids the difficult issues would, in my view, either not last or not be worth it. So we'll see. Yeah, no, it seems pretty unlikely that, that we will get an agreement which does make any difference to the Palestinian question, given uh, the way that the dynamics that you've just described. But it, it, would be, it would be great if he could, because like the Abraham Accords, Israel wanting to secure those relationships there ought to be a reasonable bargain 
to be had. I'm trying to say not a price to be paid because that suggests a, a, a wrong approach. But ending injustices to the Palestinians and getting into a situation where no longer will there be any reason or, or any excuse for the appalling terror attacks which have continued and the endless cycle of violence involving the innocent, uh, which we've seen over too many years. Anything that ends that has got to be good if it's solid and well based. Yeah, so yeah. Need... It's just I'm not sure that reason is the the trait most associated with the the current Israeli government or the the forces within the different Palestinian territories. Which and the Palestinians is... have been to Riyadh quite a bit recently. So who knows what? No, no. I mean not that. the. I meant the forces which appeal to public opinion at the moment. Yeah. But anyway, I hope you're. I hope you're right. I do need to bring us to Europe's role in this kind of increasingly um, multipolar Middle East to kind of look at what opportunities the rise of, of more assertive middle powers might give Europeans. Ellie, do you want to have your first crack at it? Yeah, I mean, uh, I would just, you know, add, and because this is a question of Europe, is that, you know, some would say that right now the US, by trying to dangle this offer in front of um, MBS in Saudi Arabia, is trying to slow down the relationship between the major Middle Eastern countries and China, and that, you know, China is the sort of big elephant in the room here in this discussion and that, uh, you know, the Palestinians and even normalization with Israel is a secondary issue. So, you know, I think that for Europeans as well, as they are looking at the, the you know, big global competition, there's a lot of questions here about how they're going to address the big hydrocarbon producers that they have a much bigger dependency on now since since the war in Ukraine. Um, you know, how they're going to address the relationship of, of these countries with Russia and China. The Europeans have been in the UAE, for example, recently, asking them to try and stop help uh, Russia with sanctions busting. But I think we need to come, you know, to the table with, with much more smarter leverage points, much more smarter talking points of, you know, how do we try these countries uh, towards our vision and our economic models in a competitive way rather than you know just asking them to to cut these relationships or reduce these relationships so for example in this Russia Iran paper that we've outlined in addition to using you know coercive measures like sanctions and political pressure and intelligence exposure to slow down the relationship between Russia and Iran we've also said that you know Europeans and the US could together put forward a attractive economic offer to Iran that provides it with much needed immediate economic relief in a way that China and Russia, frankly, have failed to do over the last decade. Um, so unfortunately, in this more multipolar world order, we have to sort of hold our noses and engage in certain diplomatic activities that is unsavory, but that ultimately push forward our security interests um, in, in a more strategic way. I think, Ellie, that, that you know what, what you say, you know, broadly makes sense. We've all mentioned the changing world. Europe has to recognise and work with that. I, I think one of the things that's on, you know, at the heart of what we've been talking about in the background is what I said about governance. I think ideas of pressing the region to significant change of models of governance, which might have been a European ideal a generation ago, I, I think currently that's just dead in the water, partly because. All surveys suggest that Arab opinion puts stability first and economic prosperity second. There's no great drive for changes in governments and greater democracy being the 
the central, the, the core of desire amongst Arab people, uh, Arab peoples at the moment, uh, if the changes they want. The UAE is consistently the country that most young Arabs want to live in. People aren't worried so much about the situation of governance that I think we were worried about a generation ago and wanting to suggest something different. I think the truth is, as Ellie suggested, we're going to have to settle for something rather different because we have other issues facing us at the moment. Economics, security in a world where we want to see our friends not pressed into joining autocratic authoritarian alliances that may be threatening. We want answers to the energy issue and the climate issue. And we're going to have to work with people. And maybe some of the ideals that we've had at our core for a long time are just going to have to take a little bit more time. They shouldn't be surrendered, but maybe Europe has to look at the world as it is uh, rather than it wants it to be for a little bit longer than we would have wished. Okay, um, so it's a very sober end on which to end this interesting discussion. But we have one thing left to do on our podcast, and that is our bookshelf section. What's on your bookshelf at the moment, Ellie? So I'm I'm going to be very self-centered and actually propose a rival ECFR podcast <laughs> by the Meta program, which is under our Women of Middle East Network for Peacebuilding. And uh, in our latest podcast, we interviewed three excellent leading women experts, human rights defenders and activists uh, regarding the state of play inside Iran a year on from the nationwide protests that broke after the death of Mahsa Amini. Uh, and we had a really interesting conversation on the power dynamics between both the state and the streets and the acts of civil disobedience and resistance that bravely continue still, but also how the events of the last year have reshaped the the power dynamics amongst different factions uh, inside Iran's leadership. Okay, great. Fantastic. I don't think it's a rival podcast. I think it's a complementary podcast. Sure. Sorry. What's on your bookshelf, Alistair? Uh, loads of books about football and cycling. A couple of things I'd like to mention. Kathy Ashton's book, and then what? Describing her time during the, a period of crises that in her role as uh, European, uh, the European Union's first uh, foreign representative. Uh, really good, uh, good stuff. I'm going to be going to Conservative Party conference quite soon, and we're going to be discussing Con Coughlin's book about a sad, a triumph of tyranny, which I think will be a fairly acerbic look at what deals have had to be done uh, in relation to the uh, the Arab tyrant. Other things I'd recommend, anything by Mark Leonard and uh, Simon Maybun of Lancaster University. And if you want a really interesting read, the book 1923 by Ned Bolting, which is a fascinating story about cycling and a small clip of the Tour de France from 1923 and one man's obsession with finding out more about it. If you love cycling, you'll love this book. Fantastic. What a cornucopia of offerings. So I think that brings the time of this podcast to an end. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please head to whatever platform you use to listen to this episode on and uh, subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, it'd be wonderful if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating as that will help bring other people to the podcast. We'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Ellie, Alistair and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Anand Sundar and the editor of this episode is Pierre Jacoby. 